Folgerpod. Folgerpod. A podcast from the Friends of Georgia Radio. Today we start to unpack the history of one of the best-known college stations in the country with two guys who know it really well. One, while still working at Album 88, was the first voice on the air when 96 Rock launched. The other one has been WRASPD operations manager and advisor off and on from 1981 to today. And oh, by the way, both with significant rock chops also worked in commercial radio in Atlanta doing beautiful music. Want to know how WRAS became Album 88? The answer is next. It's Katie Kylie, and I'm a proud member of the Friends of Georgia Radio. These podcasts are just one way we honor Georgia's rich history of great radio stations and the talented people who created the on-air magic. Our website is loaded with classic air checks, photos, and videos from all over Georgia. So check it out. Then get involved. You'll find all the details at friendsofgeorgiaradio.org couple of great guests today. One is Drew Murray, who moved to Atlanta in 68, just in time to be around for WPLO-FM, Atlanta's first progressive rock. Uh, before he came to GSU and RAS, he even had commercial experience already working for Class FM, which was WKLS. A lot of people don't remember that KLS actually originally stood for Class, which was Beautiful music. And then Drew went to Stereo Rock 93, which eventually became Z93. Um, Then he got over to RAS, had commercial radio experience under his belt, but uh, that earned him the MD stripes. Uh, Went to back to KLS because in 74, Kent Burkhart decides he needs an RAS staffer on his staff. And there was Drew doing weekends. So lots of great experience. I really want to unpack that. Um, And then Jeff Walker, who got to RAS in 76 and and just can't seem to leave. Uh, He was was the program director in 81, then the GM from 82 to 84. He was ops manager and advisor off and on, mostly on since then until 2014 when... Jeff tried to retire, and it didn't work. <laughs> so he got hired back, uh, and and now GSU has a, a new advisor again. So Jeff is still over there helping with FCC compliance and RCS selector issues. Um, and along the way, he worked at WGST and, and at Peach. So uh, wealth of commercial radio experience and uh, even more wealth of WRS experience here. So, Drew, I want to start with you. You were here in 68 and and got to hear uh, Progressive Underground uh, Radio on WPLO. Did, did you catch the tail end of the time when the GSU students were running the, the nighttime program or not? I, I really never put um, A and B together that it was being run by Georgia State students. Uh, again, I was, you know, I, I was uh, a, a sophomore in high school. And uh, all I knew is that they were playing great music. Um, I know that it was the program director, because the, the name always stuck with me, was a guy named Ed Shane. Um, and, um, and I wound up running into him in a few places later on in my career. Um, but, you know, got the chance to tell him, of, like, you know, 
dude, you were my, you know, <laughs> you were my musical guru. When I grew up, I wanted to be you, you know, at the end of the day. So you get out of high school and uh, pretty soon you're working at WKLS. Um, at the same time, RAS is signing on. So you like the kind of music you were hearing on PLO and you're over at KLS, you know, running beautiful music tapes at night, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because I mean, I, you know, I, I was, you know, 18 years old and just out of high school and just glad to have a job in radio for more than lack of anything else. Um, so, yeah, but that but was, um, you know, listening to Ed Shane on the old WPLO is what inspired me to get into radio uh, to begin with. So, you know. And you get to RAS about 1973, and uh, you're a jock and the music director. And, and that was right after the station, um, you know, a couple of years after the station had signed on on the new frequency. Um, so you guys were still getting your feet on the ground in terms of how well, you yes, wanted. Well, yes and no, because it was at least I knew enough, you know, and just being a, a, a fan of, you know, of rock music at the time. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, whatever at the time in Jet, but I mean, you can probably expound on this a little bit, but at least in, in the 70s, they used to change the executive staff every at the end of every school year. So, like in May, June, they would bring in you know a new executive staff, and that's how I got in 73 when I went there because I had commercial radio experiences that we should put this guy on the executive staff because he knows what he's doing. And, um, as you mentioned, Dennis, before. Um, you know, WPLO, I think it was doing some version of top 40 at the time. WQXA, WQXI obviously was, was the big top 40 powerhouse still in the market. Uh, Z93 was doing top 40. And at the time when I went back there, when I went to, to, to Georgia State, nobody was playing quote unquote album rock in Atlanta, period. So, I mean, for me, just as, you know, I mean, I was, you know, 19 years old, about to turn 20, but still, there's nobody playing Led Zeppelin. There's nobody playing uh, the Allman Brothers. There's nobody playing the Who, you know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe we should try and go back to that because that's what WPLO was. Um, so it was just, it, it was an easy decision to make of like, hey, we should probably do this versus trying to compete with WQXI and WPLO. So the station had been top 40 kind of before the executive staff for 72, 73. I think when it signed on, you know, originally it, it did come back on as an album rock station, okay. progressive rock station, if you will. Um, but um, like I said, you know, King Buttermore, who was the, 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 the dean, uh, I think it was dean of students or whatever. I can't remember exactly, but he was also the faculty advisor for the radio station. Um, his main purpose was to give the students that wanted to work at WRAS some radio experience. If they wanted to make a career out of that, they would have some experience to move on from that. And every other, you know, quote unquote, contemporary station in Atlanta being top 40, they figured, okay, well, let's do top 40 because that's what everybody else is doing. And I'm like, no, you know, Albert Hammond Jr. It only rains in Southern California. It's not going to sell out the Omni. Led Zeppelin is. Pink Floyd will, you know, uh, et cetera. So it might be a good idea to go back to doing this. What was the criteria for adding music back then? I mean, you came with with commercial experience, so you you understood. Yeah, I think the, the the main thing I put into it was a what I learned from from working, especially at Stereo Rock ninety three. 
which was originally when it went on the air, it was it was a it was automated, but the music was done by an old 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 radio consultant named Bill Drake. Uh, and then when they went live, they still used the clocks, but it was the 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 concept of a clock. You know, uh, at this part of the hour, you play you know a current, you play you know a, a, a top current. Here you play a recurrent. Here you play a gold. You know, et cetera, on down the line. So I put a clock in uh, at WRAS because that's what I'd learned, um, and you know, so that was so that was really the main thing. And aside from that, there really were no criteria as far as like what we were going to add or not add. It's just whether we liked it or not. Um, again, we're still you know, nineteen, twenty year old college students with uh, who were fans of rock music. So you know, aside from the obvious, you know, you're you know, the, I mean, the Who put out Quadrophenia. Uh, you know, Elton John put out Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Um, you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer put out Brain Salad Surgery. That all came out during, you know, that time. The Stones, McCartney's been on the run. But there were bands that had no history in Atlanta that we came across going like, you know what, this is really, really good. Like Genesis, right? Selling England by the Pound came out. And we're going to like, how come nobody's ever heard this band before? They're awesome, right? Uh, and other things like that. So that's you know that's where uh, that's where we took it. What kind of reaction did you get from the record industry? Were they interested in what you guys were doing? Yes, uh, they caught on relatively quickly. I mean, I, I was able to a certain extent just from when I was working at Z ninety three. I got a chance to meet a couple of the local reps who used to come in and work us on records and stuff. Um, but aside from that, they figured out pretty quickly that, you know, this college station down at the end of the dial was, was making an impact in album sales. Um, and I, I think the best story I can have, I can't remember exactly when during the year that I was there, uh, programming it, that this happened, but the band Kansas put out their first record. Um, and now after having spent the last, you know, 40 something years in the in the in the record business. Uh, I know when something's a priority and something is not a priority. Obviously, that was not a priority for for Columbia or Epic or whatever. I can't it was it was CBS distribution, but I can't remember exactly what label. It might have been Epic. Um, but I we had people calling us, going, okay, you're playing this band Kansas, but we can't find the album in the store. So I called, you know, I think it was the Epic rep, just going, um, excuse me, but we're getting phone calls. They can't find the album in the stores. Um, and just it was it was that kind of impact and that kind of, uh, you know, that they figured out that this little college station now at the end of the dial was making an impact for sales. And if you have an impact for sales, they're going to pay attention to you. Wow. That's a great story. And and that really says a lot about the, you know, the history of the radio station, how important it, it was pretty fast. In, mm -hmm. in, in and the, pretty much, I mean, honestly, it stayed there I mean, after I left, you know, and again, that was through the various and sundry permutations that mm -hmm. it went through, uh, you know, after that, um, you know, it had an impact in the marketplace. And you know, as soon as, as, as Jeff will, I'm sure, expound upon when they got into the, you know, the late 70s and early 80s and stuff. But I but I will say this, there was a guy I knew that went I went to high school with um, who was another okay, I'm going to, you know, I might as well get on with my life and go get a college degree. So he didn't enroll in Georgia State until later. And it was after I left, as a matter of fact. Uh, but I, I will always remember this story. I was on the air at WKLS and he called me because he was doing the overnight shift at WRAS um, and just said, tune in, you have to listen to this. 
and it was the first Ramones album. And he played it beginning to end. But again, you know, that entire album is like maybe 25 minutes long. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it came across and he went, you know, again, WRAS had that kind of, had that kind of freedom and influence. He just, he went nuts. And we wound up putting it in WKLS too. Um, but yeah, but that was, you know, because dude, you have to listen to this. <laughs> it just, it had that kind wow. of impact. And who was it? Who was the guy? His name was Dor- his name was Dorsey Barrett. And Jeff will have some stories about the Ramones. I, I have a feeling. Before we get to that, though, Drew, I got to ask you. Um, you were you were still doing overnights at KLS in '74, mm-hmm. and um, all of a sudden, you're the guy who gets to push the button and switch from Class FM to '96 Rock. What was the first song you played? Oh my goodness, that was you. That was me. Oh my! Oh my goodness! <laughs> and it just—I mean—it's in the um, Dennis has it up on the website or whatever. The, a great video that Steve Mitchell put together called "The Story of '96 Rock." Um, but uh, but Bob Helbush, who was the engineer uh, at WKLS for years, and eventually wound up being the engineer at 99X too before he retired. Um, but uh, but you know Helbush was the engineer, um, and they planned on you know Sunday night signing it off at midnight changing over the music in the studio, et cetera, and signing it on at six o'clock the next morning. And it was taking all the beautiful music albums out, putting all of the rock albums in, categorizing them, alphabetizing them, et cetera. Um, so I was there. Um, so we, you know, I, it was me, Bob Helbush, and, uh, and, and Barry Chase was the first program director. Um, and we were done by five o'clock, even though they originally planned on signing it on at 6 a.m. Uh, with Jeff Winter. We were there, it was done, and they went, go ahead, <laughs> okay, sign it on at 5 a.m. And I, I went through, you know, some thought process of it, of like, do I play Good Morning by the Beatles? There was a uh, a, um, a Steve Miller band song called Good Morning, Good Morning, uh, you know, uh, Chelsea Morning by Joni Mitchell. I thought of all these and just went, nah, the who, it's only Teenage Wasteland. <laughs> that was it was it was that simple of a thought process. And I just I put on the I put on Bob O'Reilly. And you actually uh ended up in the record industry for a while too, which for a long time actually. Still am, yeah, pretty much yeah. for the most part. I mean, I'm an independent yeah. consultant now or whatever, just because I'm at that age. Yeah. Uh but um, you know, but yeah, no, I I I wound up um Casablanca Records, known as the disco label. Um wanted to get some quote-unquote rock credibility not only for their one rock band kiss but they were signing some other rock bands too um so they hired me out of wkls and they hired a guy out of boston who worked at wbcn by the name of john brody uh as regional reps to try and give the label some quote-unquote rock credibility um and to just to make a long story semi-short uh, Casablanca wound up caving in on itself. It's been documented in a number of books, um, but it, it, it got bought out by Polygram. Uh, and I wound up staying there, you know, basically it was, I was the last remaining Casablanca employee, um, until 1998. <laughs> you know? wow. So I, I spent 20 years working Kiss Records, for lack of a better term, because they came, they came along with it as well. 
And we're going to talk to Gail Harris a little later, too, who also was working in the record business. And it's fascinating to me, and and Jeff, I I want to get your input on this, too. Uh, Drew, you were working for commercial radio at the same time you're working for RAS. Uh, When Jeff gets to RAS, he's still doing a little bit of work at GST and at Peach, right? Um, And yet you're working college radio. So, Jeff... What was the what was the contrast there? I mean, what, when you walked into RAS, it was a totally different atmosphere, I'm sure, from what you're experiencing uh, down the street. Yes, and it, and it wasn't really uh, uh, as analogous as it would have been to work at 96 Rock or, or a music station. I, I got in through a woman uh, that Drew may know, uh, Jill, Jill Stanislavski. She yeah. uh, worked at RAS and she went to work for WGST at the, as it became a news station in either 76 or 77. I can't remember which year, but she went over there as a producer. And I, I said, oh, Jill, I want to see the station. She said, come on in. And so I, I went and hung around and just through hanging around, um, eventually they said, we need a board operator. I was like, oh, OK. So I started working there as doing board operating for uh, for Clark Howard and uh neil Bortz and some other people back famous people back then uh the only person that remembers me is clark howard thank you clark clark but (laughs) so i was working there and then the next year i think it was either i think it was 77 or 78 i started working at at peach and so peach wasn't uh that peach fit my natural personality of being semi in a coma but the uh i didn't exactly have a stellar uh delivery and so um the great ratings though oh everybody every single dentist and uh, uh asian food place in atlanta had <laughs> it anyway so they uh but what did what i did get out of that which uh did me uh, a pretty good service later was that uh, jim hutto the program director um was just amazed that this what 19 i think of 19 at the time year old kid yeah it was 19 at the time actually was interested in the Jim Shulky method of beautiful music. And he did have a method and he was very good. Almost every Jim Shulky program station in the country was the leader of the, of the pack. And they had a, he had a, a lot of science to his, his uh, methodology anyway. But uh, Jim, I said to Jim one day, I said, he, he mentioned something about, well, he talked like this. He said, well, I'm going to go up to, uh, to the Arbitron headquarters in Maryland and uh, do the, the Arbitron uh, uh, audit, uh, the diary audit. I said, ooh, that sounds like fun. He looked at me like I was crazy. So that sounds like fun. I said, what happens? He said, you you sit down and you they pull out the 2000 diaries for Atlanta and you actually put your hands on them. You put your hands on every single one of them and you make notes. <clears throat> he said, you can't copy them or anything, but you make notes and, and we see whether they're giving us the credit we're supposed to have. If we can challenge a diary if we want to. So I thought, Ooh, wonderful. I want to, I want to get an education and then I want to see how many people are listening to RAS. <laughs> so, uh, I said, yeah, I didn't tell him about the RAS part, but I said, Jim, let me go with you. I said, I'll pay my own way. I don't care. I need the education. And he was like, well, okay. So I paid my own way. Of course, that's the, that was the clear channel way of doing it the cheap way. So we, they allowed <laughs> me to pay my own way and go up there. So they, we get put in this little booth and they drag out the 2000 diaries. And so I'm making my notes about peach, but also on a, a separate piece of paper, I'm making my notes about RAS. And what I could see was that the audience was massively confused 
because at the left end of the dial, you had a w, you had three stations that began with WR right next to each other, RAS, FG, and EK. And EK, of course, being WREK at Georgia Tech and RFG being the, the independent, the Pacifica aligned station down there. But we are all next to each other. And so I really, people would write down all these confusing notes because they didn't know what the heck they were listening to. And the light bulb went off in my dim head saying, my God, we've got we've to do something about Rass's image. And so when I ran for general manager uh, in, in 82 and, and was elected then, uh, the first thing I did after a few weeks is I'd been thinking about this for a while is just to, is to give it a nickname of album 88. Now I, we didn't necessarily think album 88 was the best nickname in the world slogan in the world, but um, we couldn't come up with anything better. So that's the way it's been. That's what we've called it ever since, just because we wanted, I wanted to get the, the audience, the credit we, we needed from Arbitron and, and now Nielsen, of course it's, it's engineered, way they do ratings is completely different but the at least back then we got i believe we got a bump from that just because we had an identity that was not wr something and when you first got in as program director i got two questions about that where was the music position um when you took over uh you know was it fair was it still fairly consistent or had it kind of drifted it had been consistent since 79. There was a guy that was elected that did two terms in a row, and then his uh, protege was the next year after. So for three years in a row, um, of course, this is subject of, of, a, of an entire paper that a, a guy did but the about, what, about different things about the station. But in my opinion, the way that it was run for the three years before I took it was a 96 Rock Jr., they took a, they played a lot of the same artists as 96 but didn't play the emphasis cuts that 96 was playing so they weren't copying 96 but there was a lot of 96 in there with some with some ramones and and you know some edgier things but it was it was sort of like semi classic rock and it was it was like semi superstars in a sense the other question um you had been a student of Shulky and the pattern that he was using to create the Shulky format, and it was pretty successful. Were there any elements of that that were in your head when you moved into the program director chair? Were there, were there any things that you could use from that? Yeah, it made me appreciate the, the, uh, the that you want the cleanest sound that you could get. And thank God we had a wonderful engineer in Harvey Morris. And we had leased phone lines back then. Our antenna was leased off of a tower site right next to WABE's um, studios up in Buckhead. A great site, by the way. I, I almost wish we could go back there because it was a great site. The tower doesn't exist anymore. But Harvey was a stickler for sound. So thank God he was because we sounded really good. And uh, in fact, the, if you went into any stereo store in Metro Atlanta that could get our signal, they would demo RAS because we sounded so much better. We weren't heavily processed, so we sounded great. Uh, but when I got in as um, as manager, I I made doggone sure that we we replaced those any at the moment we could tell that any of the style I were getting worn, I, I went in there and replaced it myself. Is one of the things Har Harvey let me do. So I was I was more cognizant of um, the technical sound and and supported Harvey in whatever we could way way we could to to make it sound good. And then um, I was more uh, it, it introduced me to flow in, in a way that I didn't know before. It introduced me to how we deliver. I mean, all of those little 
nitpicking technical things that uh, Schulke was into, it didn't directly apply to RAS, but I was I was more appreciative of execution, format execution and consistency and the and Arbitron experience gave me more appreciation about the, the imaging. All of those kind of things helped, I think, to make us a more, not a commercial station, but uh, a more commercial station than certainly we had been. And and since Drew was in the record biz, I, I certainly know that we moved a lot of product because I remember Eddie Grant's Electric oh, yeah. Avenue we used to, and we learned more about programming because uh, Jane Davis was one of our fantastic music directors. We would add an album and let it sit. We would let it simmer for if we really believed in it. It would sit there the second week, the third week, and sometimes the fourth week. To, and then we would do sales tracking to see whether it moved. Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue eventually, at the first and second week, didn't sell anything. By the time it got Fourth week, it was selling a thousand copies from the tracking, just the tracking that we were doing in Metro Atlanta, and that's when ninety four picked it up, and they said they discovered it. <laughs> and and Drew, you were in uh, Casablanca at that time too. What were you? How did you guys see RAS? Was well, Ca Casablanca so much didn't really you know have a lot that WRAS would have been interested in because, like I said, mostly we were a disco label, et cetera, that put out Kiss records, you know. Couple, you know, once a year, uh, but but more specifically, uh, once Polygram took over, um, and so I was working Casablanca Records, RSO Records, Mercury Records, Polydor Records, uh, and a band like The Jam, for instance. Yeah, I mean, WRAS obviously had a big impact uh, on that in the marketplace. I remember, we played Saturday the Saturday Night Live uh, or Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. That was RSO, wasn't it? <laughs> that was RSO. Yeah. Exactly. So there was uh, still a lot of stuff going on in the record industry, connecting with the, the radio stations in some ways that weren't as ethical as others, perhaps. Uh, Drew, this is not directed at you, of course. Uh, but Jeff, I'm curious, you know, there, it wasn't the era of payola anymore, but there were still situations where, you know, the label could be looking for a way to spiff a music director or to get an ad. And RAS was a pretty important radio station. Were you guys worried about that? Was that on your radar? Uh, I mean, there there's a certain amount of ethics involved that most of the radio stations adhered to. You've got an even further problem because you're a non-com and you're owned by a college. I was paranoid about that because, and this is a very long story, but the extremely short version was that in, in, when we took over, when I took over as manager in 1982, we, I went to these meetings that the administration had, and they would put up on the wall a map of Metro Atlanta, and there would be little dots on it. And, and for every dot, uh, that represented, I think, 50 or 100, something like that, uh, Georgia State students. And they showed over the past five years how those dots were getting further and further and further away from downtown. And I told them, I said, well, we, I, I can read the map as well as you can. We need to increase our power. And we only had 19,500 watts at that time. So I said, we need to go up in power. We've got this docket 8090 thing, which affected only commercial stations, but we had the religious broadcasters and many others putting stations up all over everywhere in North Georgia. So I said, if we don't move now, we're never going to get it. So I started at that point. At the, I wasn't the first person to try to do this. It had been tried, I think, twice in the 70s, but we actually got, we, I, they allowed me to, to work with an engineer, with Harvey, and then with a consulting engineer, a guy named Ivan Miles, to fill out the paperwork with the FCC for a hundred thousand, and we got the wattage, and we we got the permit anyway. 
went, went back to the fee committee and said, okay, now we need a few hundred thousand dollars to make this happen. And that started in 82 and didn't end until 86 when we turned the thing on the air in 86. But my, my goal from 82 was I, I knew this was going to cost a lot of money. I knew it was going to take all the political um, support we could get to get this thing built. So I was paranoid about getting in trouble about uh, some kind of scandal or getting payola or something. So I told the staff, I said, if I even hear about anybody getting anything, and when you go off to these, uh, back at that point, you had the new music seminar, you had, uh, I don't know if Bobby Poe was still around, but that didn't really affect us very much. But you had these conventions in New York and San Francisco, the Gavin Report in San Francisco. Uh, and yeah, it would be very easy for a student to go off there and get wined and dined and uh, you know all sorts of white powdery substances thrown at them. So I said, if I even hear of you doing that, uh, you're fired. And I'm I'm not going to give you, I'm going to make sure your name is mud in this town. So, yeah, I was paranoid about that. And, Drew, it's, it was easy back uh, when you guys were working radio stations, especially in the bigger markets, um, to get to be friends with the jocks, too. So it wasn't necessarily an evil thing to want to go out to dinner and, you know, you fight over the check. But if it's a record guy who's picking it up now, you know, boy, are you in a problem yeah. area? Oh, of course, exactly. But I will say this, though. Um, I mean, it, it, there wasn't anything untoward or, under the table or anything like that or whatever. But there's um, one of the local people at the time I was at WRAS uh, was honestly, like I said, when I got into radio, I wanted to emulate Ed Shane. Uh, when I got into the music business, this is the guy I wanted to emulate. Uh, he was the local MCA rep. Uh, and his name was John Scott. And before becoming the MCA rep in Atlanta, he was a program director of FM 100 in Memphis. So he came from, you know, a commercial progressive, uh, you know, radio experience, et cetera. Um, and he was a local MCA rep. And of course, you know, from our standpoint, the guy that's giving us Elton John and Who records, we like this guy. <laughs> okay. And actually brought us a test pressing white label, I remember to this day, of the first Leonard Skinner record, uh, which also came through MCA. But that, you know, Freebird made its debut on WRAS, if you will. Um, but he tells a story, He because he wound up in, in John's career from MCA, he wound up going to, uh, to ABC uh, and became very instrumental in the career of Tom Petty um, and wrote a book about it called Tom Petty and Me. And there's a chapter in that book uh, where we're brought mm -hmm. up, it was me and the promotion director at WRAS, which was Rich Pampino, mm -hmm. where because of the influence we were having in the marketplace and selling records and stuff like that, the local people became nice to us. So what we would do was we would go out and raid the warehouse, <laughs> okay? It wouldn't be 30 of this or 40 of that or whatever, it would be one of this, one of this, one of that as it was coming out. So it's like, okay, I know you've got us on a mailing list and we'll get it next week or something like that, but let us come to the warehouse because I think it was all distribution back in those days. And, you know, when you were putting physical albums into record stores, the things would go to the branches first. So we'd go raid the WIA warehouse. We'd go read the, WIA, raid the MCA warehouse, the CBS warehouse, et cetera. But John Scott tells a story about us raiding the MCA warehouse. It's in the Tom Petty book, a book called Tom Petty and Me, uh, where he basically hoodwinked his branch manager they told us to come on a day when when we knew he wasn't going to be there because he knew we were taking too much out of the warehouse. <laughs> um, but he remembers like, you know, we're back in the warehouse picking this out, picking that out or whatever. And he comes in and tells us like, look, 
my boss is going to be here in about five minutes. You guys got to go now. And he sees us walking away with an Elton John stand-up outside the back window of the car because <laughs> we took that with us. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Can I ask a quick question of, of Drew? Uh, did uh, the Quadrophenia album come out during your time? Yes. Yes, it did. And was yeah. it true that we had a two channels on us and two channels on REK? Uh that I believe came later. We didn't premiere Quadrophenia on both stations. I don't think the quote unquote the quad thing came until, uh, you know, I, that came after Quadrophenia. I think you know, because uh, I also remember at at, at ninety six Rock, where um, early on when I was there, the whole quote unquote quad thing came out. Where I mean, you know, Quadrophenia didn't come out in quote unquote in quad. But al albums were being made in, you know, in quadrophenic stereo, if you will. You had to have a special receiver and a special, you know, set of speakers or whatever. Um, and um, and I remember it only lasted for a couple of months or whatever. But we were, you know, I was actually dubbed the Quad Father on '96 Rock for a while. <laughs> so I got one question for Jeff too. I, I know there was a period, and you guys both are talking about how the the music was. Um, you were being fairly scientific. There was a period at RAS, and Jeff, I don't know whether it was when you were there or after you had, had kind of left, where the students decided that they were going to avoid anything that was getting any kind of commercial radio airplay at all. Um, talk to me about that period. Did, did that, did that, was that an experiment that worked or... Uh, you know, what, what period of time was that during the RAS history? Uh, it switched exactly the day, like the day after 99X, uh, originally the original version of 99X came on the air and I can't remember which month, but it was 92. Is that right? True. Yeah. Say exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, and I had, in the, at the, at the, at that time, 99 was owned by Susquehanna and they, I, everybody told me they had a reputation for changing formats often. So I went down to the general manager as soon as they switched over. And I said, look, Susquehanna may change this in six months or a year. And they are going on after us. They're, they're, they're messing with our turf and don't give them, don't give them the whole station. Don't, don't do anything. I said for a year, don't do one single thing differently, except look at their heavies and don't play their heavies. But other than that, just, just try to ignore them and let's see what happens. And sure enough, within a couple of days, they uh, made the decision of, of following the normal college radio edict of if, if you've heard this, you know, if you've heard this artist before, we've made a mistake. And that did, and it made, uh, I mean, Drew can, can attest to this more than more than I can, but it did make an impact. It, it, it sent us from being a semi-pro station to um, a, a good college station, but we did not have the impact after that. We didn't sell any more thousand copies of records, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. That I do remember. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at the time, um, WRAS was, there, there was a, it was in Billboard or whatever, but what was considered, you know, an early alternative chart. Uh, and WRAS was a reporter, um, as well as a few other college stations around the country. But WRAS was the one in Atlanta before 99X. Uh, and the fact that they decided not to play anything that was on the chart, you know, absolutely. It's like, oh, gee, you know, what are we going to do now? Yeah, I fought for that hard to get in Billboard uh, through the 80s. And I can't remember what year they they put us into that new music chart. But the I just it was my opinion that you already had Georgia Tech doing a very progressive format. You already had R.E.K. 
I mean, I'm sorry, you had REK and RFG doing their super progressive stuff. There was a there was a huge gap between commercial radio and and uh, what was going on um, in, in the typical college station that was that deserved to be on the air and to play these artists that would not get played otherwise. Wow, what a great start as we unpack the history of WRAS. Part two is coming up in the next podcast from the Friends of Georgia Radio. And meanwhile, my thanks to Drew Murray and Jeff Walker for this great insight into the beginning and the middle of the WRAS story. Yeah, thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Folder Pod.